We open the scriptures together to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We will read the whole chapter and focus our attention on verses 10 and 11. So let us hear the word of God in 2 Corinthians 7. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Receive us. We have wronged no man. We have corrupted no man. We have defrauded no man. I speak not this to condemn you, for I have said before that ye are in our hearts to die and live with you. Great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my glorying of you. I am filled with comfort. I am exceeding joyful in all our tribulation. For when we were come into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Without were fightings, within were fears. Nevertheless, God that comforteth those that are cast down, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not by his coming only, but by the consolation wherewith he was comforted in you. When he told us your earnest desire, your mourning, your fervent mind toward me, so that I rejoiced the more. For though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, though I did repent. For I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry though it were but for a season. Now I rejoice, not that ye were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance. For ye were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. For behold, this selfsame thing that ye sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you, yea, what clearing of yourselves, yea, what indignation, yea, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge. In all things ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Wherefore, though I wrote unto you, I did it not for this cause, that had done the wrong, for his cause that had done the wrong, nor for his cause that suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear unto you. Therefore we were comforted in your comfort, yea, and exceedingly the more joyed we for the joy of Titus, because his spirit was refreshed by you all. For if I have boasted anything to him of you, I am not ashamed. But as we spake all things to you in truth, even so our boasting which I made before Titus is found a truth. And his inward affection is more abundant toward you, whilst he remembereth the obedience of you all, how with fear and trembling ye received him. I rejoice, therefore, that I have confidence in you in all things. Thus far, we read. The text is verses 10 and 11. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. For behold this selfsame thing, that ye sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you, yea, what clearing of yourselves, yea, what indignation, yea, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge. In all things ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians is a very personal letter that the Apostle wrote to the Corinthian church. And we 
get the feeling of that right away as we read this chapter, how personally the Apostle addresses the Corinthians. Our text concerns the repentance of the Corinthian congregation concerning a certain matter that was in their midst. That matter which is mentioned at the end of verse 11. And the Apostle rejoices that in their repentance they have become clear of this matter. The background of our text comes out, especially in verses 8 and 9. The Apostle Paul had made the Corinthian congregation sorry with a letter that he had written to them. And it is clear that this was a letter which contained sharp admonitions for sin in the congregation that was not repented of. We do not know with 100% certainty what sin the Apostle is addressing. Many have suggested that this sin is not one that we know. And that the letter that Paul mentions in verse 8, the letter that made them sorry, is a lost epistle. There's reason to believe that Paul wrote more than two letters to the Corinthians. First and second Corinthians by God's providence and design, are inspired and in the Bible, but there were other letters that the Apostle wrote. And perhaps this is a reference to one of those letters, a letter of admonition that Paul had written addressing specific sins in the Corinthian congregation. That's one possibility. Another interpretation, which has much in favor of it, is that the matter or the sin referred to here in this chapter is the same sin that we read about in 1 Corinthians 5. You remember in 1 Corinthians 5, the apostle addresses a very serious sin in the Corinthian congregation. A a man who had his father's wife. And this sin, which is so great, which would make even the unbelieving Gentiles blush, was not being properly dealt with. An intolerable offense was being tolerated and Paul brought strong admonition calling the church to repent of that and to deal rightly with that sin in their midst. And so that's another possibility of what may be behind the text here. That is the interpretation that, personally, I favor. Whatever the sin was, and whatever the letter was that Paul wrote addressing it, the point is the same. Here, the Apostle addresses the important matter of repentance and rejoices in the repentance that he sees in the Corinthian congregation, or rather that he hears from his fellow laborer, Titus, who had visited the Corinthians after Paul had sent that letter of admonition, and Titus had found the Corinthians repentant and eager to make known Their sorrow for their sin. Make that known to the Apostle Paul. Titus had brought a word back to Paul. And Paul upon hearing it rejoiced. He did not take pleasure in writing that sharp letter to the Corinthians that he loved. And yet that sharp letter was a letter of love. Because the path of impenitence is the path of death. But as our text says. Godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. This text, while addressing a very particular historical situation in the church in Corinth, is nonetheless a text that applies to the church throughout the ages. Here we have a concrete example of the apostle dealing with sin in the church. And here we have very concrete and helpful instruction Concerning what true repentance is. And thus this is a word that is valuable for us as a congregation. And valuable for us as individual believers. Because repentance is not something that should be occasional. Or once in a while in the life of the Christian. But repentance is something that ought to characterize the entirety of the Christian life. We are a sinful people. We are sinners saved by grace. But as those who are saved by grace... We are now called by the power of the Spirit every day of our lives to turn from sin and turn unto God. 
And what that turning looks like, what true repentance looks like, is described for us here in 2 Corinthians 7, 10 through 11. Very relevant, very practical. Because you and I sin against each other. We sin against our spouses. We sin against our children. We sin against our friends. We sin against our fellow church members. We sin against our neighbors. And sin always causes disruption and conflict and hurt and trouble and estrangement. And repentance and forgiveness is the God-ordained way by which that obstruction, that disturbance, that trouble, that estrangement is removed. And relationships are mended. And offense is removed. Reconciliation is effected among brothers and sisters. Very practical. Very relevant. A word we all need to hear at all times in our Christian lives. And so we're going to look at this text tonight. In the interest of growing in our understanding of what true repentance is. And what it should look like in our lives. The theme is godly sorrow of true repentance. Godly sorrow of true, rep- of true repentance. First, we're going to look at the meaning of it. Secondly, the proof of it. And finally, briefly, emphasize that this is the Christian's way of life. Godly sorrow worketh Repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. Verse 10 teaches us something crucially important about repentance. Namely, that true repentance begins here. It begins with godly sorrow for sin. That's the starting point of repentance. That's the fountainhead from which all of the activities of repentance flows. That's the seed from which true repentance grows. Godly sorrow. Godly sorrow, as described in the text, is a brokenness of heart. A brokenness of heart over my sin. That means my sin really bothers me. It grieves me. It pierces me deeply. It cuts to the quick, you might say. I don't see my sin as a little thing, but as a big thing. It grieves me. I am broken over it. With this brokenness of heart, there is a spirit of humble contrition before God against whom all my sins are committed, and against any man, my neighbor, against whom I have sinned. A brokenness of heart and a spirit of humble contrition. Godly sorrow. And that that word godly is important because it defines precisely what the sorrow of true repentance is. You see, not all sorrow is repentant sorrow. Only godly sorrow. That phrase in the text, godly sorrow, could more literally be rendered according to God sorrow. And even the word order is important. The prepositional phrase according to God is put first. According to God sorrow. Because godly sorrow is God-centered. Godly sorrow is concerned about God first and foremost. There's emphasis here. Sorrow that is godly is sorrow that is God-focused, that is consciously directed towards God. It is sorrow that is above all sorrowful because I understand what my sins are in the eyes of God and what my sins are to God. Godly sorrow grasps the evil of sin. And therefore grieves over it. More grievous to godly sorrow than the unpleasant consequences of sin. More grievous is the recognition that sin offends God. Is an affront to God. And now for the Christian, 
That cuts to the quick because God is not just some supreme being out there. God is not some cosmic force. But God is my Father. God is the God of my salvation who gave His only begotten Son to ransom me from sin. Who brought me into the bonds of His covenant love and calls me to live obediently unto Him. And my sin is the direct disobedience of a child against his loving Father. And for the believer... That grieves me. That's godly sorrow. It's God-centered. If you want to see godly sorrow put into words, you can do no better than turn to David's psalm, Psalm 51, and read verses 3 and 4, where David says, For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only have I sinned, and done this Evil in thy sight. You see, he identifies the nature of sin. It's not just a mistake. It's not just something unfortunate. It's not just slipping up. He doesn't minimize it, but he perceives what it really is at heart. It's evil, that which is contrary to God, my God. Godly sorrow is God centered, God focused, not self centered. It reckons with sin. For what sin is. A couple biblical examples that help illustrate the reality of sorrow that is according to God's sorrow, godly sorrow. Think of when Nathan came to David. And after telling David that story to illustrate David's own sin, Nathan says to David, Thou art the man. Children, do you remember how David reacted when Nathan said that to him? David didn't say, yeah, but Bathsheba did. David didn't say, yeah, okay, Nathan, but you're being a little bit of a little harsh here. I didn't intend. David, without qualification, without making excuses, without shifting some blame, says in 2 Samuel 12 verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. And the fewness of David's words should not be interpreted as a general non-specific apology or a general non-specific confession. That's godly sorrow. God-centered sorrow. God used the word of his prophet, Nathan, to pierce David's heart. And David sees it and David grieves and he says, I have sinned against my God. By saying that, he was confessing to all that Nathan had pointed out. Not only was David guilty of committing adultery, but he was guilty of murder. He was guilty of abusing his power as king. He confessed that. With those potent words, I have sinned against God. Go to the Gospel of Luke, to the courtyard of the chief priest, where Jesus is being unjustly tried, and the disciple Peter is outside by the fire. And Peter, having denied the Lord three times, have his heart pierced. As Luke 22 verses 61 and 62 says, And the Lord, Jesus, turned and looked upon Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said unto him, Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. Jesus and Peter's eyes met. And Peter came to his senses And he was brought to realize what he had just done in denying his Lord, his master, and his friend. And he goes out and weeps bitterly. And that's not the weeping of self-pity. But Peter is weeping because he understands the nature of his sin, what he has done to Jesus. That's godly sorrow. You can also say that godly sorrow is godly sorrow because it is of God. God is the origin of it. Godly sorrow is God wrought. 
Because our human nature is naturally blind to our sin. Our human nature naturally relishes in sin. And our human nature will not sorrow in a godly manner over sin. Godly sorrow is a fruit of the gracious operation of the Spirit. And that's why it's a healthy sorrow. A good sorrow. The text says it's a sorrow to salvation. And we'll talk about that more later. But let us see at the moment. That shows us this is a healthy sorrow. From which good fruit springs. Godly sorrow. That is God worked. And God centered. Now. That's the sorrow that Paul rejoices to see in the Corinthians. Before he had heard from Titus. The report of how the Corinthians had received his letter of admonition. Paul was concerned. Because he didn't know how they would respond. What if they responded with a different kind of sorrow? Verse 10 contrasts godly sorrow with the sorrow of the world. The sorrow of the world, or as we can call it, worldly sorrow. And this is a sorrow of a very different sort, which is important for us to understand. Because worldly sorrow will sometimes try to make itself out to be godly sorrow. When it is not. And worldly sorrow does not lead to repentance. It is not sorrow that is according to God. What is this worldly sorrow that verse 10 speaks about? Worldly sorrow is the opposite of godly sorrow. Whereas godly sorrow is sorrow according to God. Worldly sorrow is sorrow according to me. Godly sorrow is a brokenness of heart over my sin and humble contrition before God. Godly sorrow understands the nature of my sin, the affront that it is to God. Worldly sorrow is not a brokenness of heart before God, but it is a grief over how my sin has affected me and my life. This is the kind of sorrow that you see Among mankind all over the place. A man commits a gross sin. And eventually his sin catches up to him. And he weeps. And he expresses sorrow. But that sorrow is not centered on God. And what his sin is in the eyes of God. Nor is that sorrow focused on the neighbor that he hurt. But it's all about him. And how unpleasant this has made his life. And all of the rest. That's the sorrow of the world. Not God-centered, but self-centered. Not humble and contrite, but in fact full of a subtle pride. Because you see, the sorrow of the world that focuses on me and how the consequences of my sin affect me is a sorrow that refuses to take full ownership of my sin, refuses to acknowledge it for what it is, and maintains a sort of self-righteousness. Worldly sorrow has subtle pride embedded in it. And that's the sorrow that naturally flows from the fallen nature of man. Self-centered sorrow. Sorrow according to me. Such that. That sin is against God. That's not so important. The effect of sin upon the neighbor. That's not so important. The focus of worldly sorrow is. The pain The consequences of my sin has brought me now. And now I need to get out of those consequences. And escape the trouble and pain I'm feeling. A couple biblical examples of worldly sorrow. From the Old Testament, think of Esau. As he's described in Hebrews 12, 16 and 17. You remember the story of how Esau was very hungry and sold his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of soup. And then afterwards, Esau realized 
the wrong that he had done, and he was very upset, but he did not sorrow after a godly sort. Hebrews 12 verse 16 says that Esau was a profane person who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. And then in verse 17, the writer to the Hebrews says, Ye know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. Esau cried big crocodile tears, but he wasn't really sorry. He wasn't sorry for his sin against God. His cavalier attitude to the birthright. His giving in to carnal desires. What bothered him most was that he lost the good things that were going to come to him by that birthright. It was a self-centered sorrow. Think of Judas. Oh yes, after Judas betrayed Jesus, he was overcome with remorse. But he did not weep bitterly in the way that Peter wept bitterly. From a godly sorrow over what that sin was and what it did to his Lord. Judas's remorse was a self-centered remorse. So those are the two kinds of sorrow that the text sets next to each other. In order to contrast them. And as the text contrasts them, now verse 10 goes on to show that these two forms of sorrow are very, very different from each other and lead in very different directions. Godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Godly sorrow, sorrow that is God-centered, is sorrow That works true repentance. That is, it works out the process and the activities of true repentance that is well-pleasing in the eyes of God. Repentance. We have here in verse 10 the, the standard term in the New Testament for repentance. And the basic meaning of that term is easily remembered. The New Testament word for repent means to change your mind. To change your mind. But not in the sense that we often use that phrase. When you get up in the morning and you're going to have oatmeal and then you change your mind and you have pancakes instead. That's not what this means. But rather, the word repent means a changing of the entire disposition of your mind. And mind here refers to your inner life. You could also say your heart, your thoughts, your emotions, your will, your purposes. There is a change. There is a turning away from sin and a turning towards God. It is a change of mind with regard to sin. The sin that I once walked in. The sin that I once excused. The sin that I once secretly delighted in. I now have a change of mind towards it. I turn from it and turn to God and delight in God and the holiness of God. Repentance is a change of heart and mind that leads to a complete turning of the whole person. A sorrowful, humble, contrite turning from sin and turning to God seeking the remission of sins and a sincere desire then To please and to honor God. This repentance. The starting point of which is godly sorrow. True repentance is. The beautiful first fruit of a living faith. And that's important. Only the believer. Only the elect believer repents. Or can repent. Remember godly sorrow. The starting point of true repentance is. Worked in us by the operation of the Spirit. The one who repents is the one who sees what his sin is before the eyes of his God. And that grieves him. The one who repents turns to God with the confidence. To use the words of Psalm 130 verse 7. That there is mercy with God and plenteous redemption in Jesus Christ. The godly sorrow of repentance is sorrow with firm hope. 
That's important. We must never think of the sorrow of repentance as a, a hopeless despairing. The believer who repents and has a change of heart and mind about his sin and turns from it and turns to God, turns to God with the expectation and the hope of mercy. Because he knows that God is a merciful God who deals with us not according to the multitude of our transgressions, but according to the multitude of his tender mercies, as undeserved as those mercies are. The godly sorrow of true repentance is sorrow with a firm hope. Godly sorrow worketh repentance. That is a change of mind. It works it. And now let's understand too that the language of the text here, godly sorrow worketh repentance, that's not meant to separate godly sorrow and repentance as two completely different things. Again, godly sorrow is the starting point, the fountainhead from which the rest of repentance flows. Godly sorrow works out repentance. Godly sorrow can't sit still. Godly sorrow has to do something about my sin. Godly sorrow takes decisive action. Godly sorrow is committed in its efforts to turn. And there we see how repentance is a self-denying, not a self-centered activity, but a God-centered activity. Turning away from what displeases God and turning to God for mercy in Christ. Now, godly sorrow worketh repentance. And now there's two more little phrases to briefly look at. To salvation, not to be repented of. What does that mean? First, what does it mean that godly sorrow works repentance to salvation? Now we understand from the entirety of scripture, which is clear, that this doesn't mean that repentance is the ground of our salvation. It doesn't mean we're saved by repentance. We're saved by Jesus Christ. The only ground of our salvation is Christ's satisfaction and obedience. Repentance isn't what causes us to be saved. But the idea is that repentance flows out of the saving operation of the Spirit in your heart. Repentance is part of the Spirit's outworking, unfolding of your salvation. Go back to Essentials of Reformed Doctrine. For those of us who have taken that class perhaps recently or many years ago. And remember the order of salvation. The the benefits of salvation that God applies to his people in time. It starts with regeneration, our new spiritual birth. And it ends with our final glorification on the day of Christ. And Philippians 1 verse 6 says that this good work of salvation which God begins in us. He will perform unto the day of Christ. All throughout our earthly pilgrimage, the Spirit is working, performing that good work. Repentance is a fruit of the Spirit working in our hearts savingly. Sanctifying us, preserving us, turning us from sin, turning us to God. Working, of course, in such a way that we are conscious and active. Not chess pieces that he moves around on the board. But he works in such a way that we will both, we both will and do God's good pleasure. So, repentance is part of the Spirit unfolding that work of salvation. As he works it out in our lives day by day until he brings us to perfection. And that's why the text says repentance is to salvation. To salvation. The Spirit is working day by day to separate us from sin and consecrate us to God. And repentance is part of that ordained path in this life on which the Spirit leads us towards That final completion of salvation on the day of Christ. And thus we see that godly sorrow and repentance is something supremely wholesome and beneficial in the life of a Christian. 
And that's why verse 10 says, it's something not to be repented of. That phrase, not to be repented of, is, connects back to repentance. Godly sorrow worketh repentance, not to be repented of. That is not to be regretted. While godly sorrow hurts, and while repentance is humbling, and while it is painful to admit and to confess our sins and to accept responsibility for them, yet that true repentance is never loss, but gain. There may be many things that we regret in this life, but here's one thing you will never regret. You will never regret Repentance. You will never regret turning from and forsaking that sin in your life. Repentance is something that is unregrettable. In contrast to that, the sorrow of the world leads to death. Worldly sorrow is not true sorrow for sin. And thus it leads in the opposite direction. It never yields true repentance, but yields only death. Jesus said in Luke 13 verse 3, I tell you, nay, except ye repent, ye shall likewise perish. Worldly sorrow has the deadly effect of keeping a man in his sins. He sorrows over them, but he doesn't really He sorrows over the trouble they've brought into his life. Worldly sorrow leads to no change of heart concerning that sin. Nor a change of life beyond what is superficial. Yes, someone who has the sorrow of the world might work hard to get over his drug addiction because that drug addiction made all sorts of misery in his life, and he may do so. And it may lead to an outward improvement of his life. But that worldly sorrow is not real sorrow for sin as sin. And worldly sorrow can blind a man. He can think he's good. He shed some tears over it even though he's still in the grips of it. Worldly sorrow does not lead to genuine repentance, but often will produce a fake repentance that is lethal to the soul. It can harden a man in his sin, grieve the spirit, and leads further down that road of death. Impenitence is that broad way That leads to destruction. Thus the importance of the instruction of the text. The calling of the Christian. The calling of the gospel is repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this text helps us understand that important call of the gospel. Here is what true repentance looks like. This is how the Christian ought to view sin. Before I think of the sins of others, I think about mine first. Offense against God, grief to my Father. Does that pierce my heart? Does it lead me to humble contrition before God? So that I look nowhere else, because there's there's nothing out there that can rescue me from this sin. Look to Christ alone, the God-given mediator, the God-given Savior, who took all my sins upon Himself and bore them upon the tree of the cross, being made a curse for me, being made sin for me, that I might be made the righteousness of God. He is my escape, He is my Savior, and I run to Him, run to Him, take my refuge in Him. And There's another reason why the sorrow of the world leads to death. The man who only sorrows with the sorrow of the world doesn't see, doesn't appreciate the need for Christ. 
But the one who sorrows over sin with a godly sorrow has nowhere else to look but God's own Son. And when the eyes of faith meet the eyes of Jesus in the Gospel, our bitter weeping is replaced with great rejoicing. Because in the eyes of Christ in the Gospel, there is mercy, forgiveness, plenteous redemption. Having gone through the lion's share of the content of the text, we come now to the proof of it. What does godly sorrow and true repentance look like? What's its evidence? How is godly sorrow and true repentance manifest and distinguished from the sorrow that is just worldly, the sorrow of the world and the fake repentance that it often produces? And that's where verse 11 enters the picture. A tree is known by its fruits. And true repentance is known by its actions. Godly sorrow gives evidence that it is indeed godly by what it does. Repentance proves its genuineness with visible change. Go back to that New Testament term for repentance. A change of mind. A change of heart regarding my sin. And the point was made earlier that that change of heart must then manifest itself in a change of life. A change of walk. And that's the proof of true repentance. That's what the Apostle Paul sees in the Corinthians as it's reported to him by Titus. That's what rejoices his heart. Titus doesn't just come back and say, yeah, the the Corinthians said sorry. But Titus explains the change in the Corinthians' bearing, the change in their conduct, the change in their demeanor, the change in their attitude, the change in the way they talked, the change in how they addressed the sin that was in their midst that they had been tolerating and neglecting to deal with rightly. And Titus reports the changed behavior of the Corinthians. And that lifts Paul's soul. And he rejoices. Because he can see. There is godly sorrow that worketh repentance to salvation. Not to be repented of. And now in verse 11. Paul describes what Titus had reported to him. What Titus saw in the Corinthians. There's seven things here in verse 11. And very quickly I'm going to walk through them all. And each of these can be considered as a mark. Of what true repentance looks like. A mark that distinguishes godly sorrow. From the sorrow of the world. So verse 7 begins. For behold this self same thing. That ye sorrowed after a godly sort. What carefulness it wrought in you. The godly sorrow of true repentance begat carefulness in the Corinthians. And that that word carefulness means an earnestness, an eagerness, an urgency to address the matter that previously they had neglected. There was a very visible change in them. Earlier they had been indifferent. Or worse than indifferent, neglectful. There was this man guilty of that heinous sin of incest in the congregation. And they didn't do anything about it. And that neglect was harmful to that man's soul who was allowed to go on in his sin. And that was harmful to the whole congregation. A little leaven leavens the lump. It was dishonoring to God. And thus there was a responsibility of the whole congregation. And of the office bearers of the congregation for that sin and allowing it to fester. But the Spirit used Paul's letter. That's how the Spirit uses the word. He pricks our hearts. He pierces us. He brings us to genuine repentance. That's what the Spirit did with Paul's letter. And the Corinthians read Paul's letter and they didn't get mad. They didn't get all defensive. They didn't fight back. But they humbled themselves. 
with a godly sorrow. And then they showed the genuineness of their repentance with an earnestness and urgency to address the matter. To deal with it rightly. They changed their ways. Their repentance then is proven by that earnestness. They recognize the sin now for what it is. And they recognize the danger that it was. They recognize their own mishandling of it. And we see repentance in action. They forsake their indifference. They forsake their avoidance. They forsake their defensiveness. And with a newfound urgency, rally together as a congregation to make it right. And so Paul goes on. Yea, what clearing of yourselves. Here's another mark of genuine repentance. Clearing of yourselves. The idea is not excusing or denying the reality of the sin that was committed or the neglect of it. But the idea is a clearing of yourself by taking full ownership of that sin. Taking full responsibility and fully and completely confessing and asking for forgiveness. They humbled themselves. And oh, that's so hard to do, isn't it? The human nature says, no, I don't want to be humble. The human nature wants to put up the fists. The human nature wants to clear myself by getting defensive, by denying, by minimizing. But that never works. That only makes matters worse. The way of clearing oneself is humbling oneself. And with sincerity and simplicity taking ownership of my sin. Yes, it's mine. Yes, I did that. Yes, I said that. I see the wrongness of it. I see the hurt that it caused. And I confess it before God and before men. And the wonderful thing is that confession is a clearing. It unburdens the soul. That full confession Deals with the guilt that was clinging to them. And we can well imagine how the Corinthians felt a renewed sense of peace. As they confessed their sins to the Lord. To Titus. and Through Titus to Paul. A full confession. A clearing of themselves. Going on, yea, what indignation. Before the Corinthians, they they just didn't recognize the sin in their midst for what it was. And that allowed them to minimize it. That allowed them to put up with it, to tolerate it, to avoid it. But now they've come to see it for what it is. And there's an indignation, a holy anger and hatred, not for any man, But a holy indignation and hatred for the sin itself because they see what it is. And they see what an offense it is against God. You think of Lord's Day 33 which speaks about the true conversion of man as a sincere sorrow for sin and a hatred of it. From godly sorrow springs a righteous hatred of sin. And that righteous hatred then becomes a fuel of change. A fuel for forsaking Fleeing, fighting, and getting rid of that sin. and Turning to God. The Corinthians' indifference was replaced with a holy hatred that fueled righteous change. Yea, what indignation. Yea, what fear, the apostle says. And here the idea is not that the truly repentant man is a man who is trembling in terror. But remember, worldly sorrow isn't God-centered. Worldly sorrow pushes God out of one's mind. But godly sorrow is God-centered. And when God looms large before your mind's eye, when God is your focus, you have that proper trembling before the majesty and the holiness of God. And the man who is truly repentant for his sins, God is in the forefront of his mind. God is in all of his talk. His focus is on God. You'll see true repentance that way. When the repentant sinner is concerned about God 
and what his sin is in the eyes of God. When that's his focus. When there's a godly fear. Rather than a focus on me. Me. Fear. A godly fear. And lastly, the the last three we put all together because they fit together very well. Yea, what vehement desire. Yea, what zeal. Yea, what revenge. Vehement desire is an affectionate longing, yearning. True repentance shows itself in a change of affections. Whereas I once had affection for my sin. So much so that I I kept it. I held it to myself. I didn't want it taken away from me. And I bristled at anyone who pointed it out. True repentance manifests itself turning away from that sin and affection for God and a hunger and thirst for righteousness. And that pairs with zeal. Zeal which is a fervent desire and energetic effort. Repentance is not a sluggish, sleepy thing. But true repentance shows itself with a fervent desire for the change in my life. And an energetic effort towards that change. And we understand that repentance doesn't always happen overnight. There are times when a child of God falls deeply into a sin. Or that sin becomes an ingrained habit. And the battle to get out of that snare takes time. And there's progress little by little, but it's progress in the right direction. And you see the evidence of true repentance, and you see that building. It doesn't always happen instantly. Often it doesn't. But a mark of true repentance is that you see that zeal there. You see that effort. You see that hunger and thirst for righteousness. Where there's a sin that's divided a brother and a brother or a sister and a sister. You see a a, a zeal To have that relationship mended in reconciliation, you see a commitment to making things right. That's how true repentance shows itself. Zeal, vehement desire, and revenge. Interesting word here, revenge. The idea is not that once a man repents, he becomes vengeful. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Nor is the idea that once a man has repented of his sin, he begins imposing extreme and unusual punishment upon himself to try to make atonement. Like the monks in the Middle Ages would beat themselves or starve themselves to try to make amends for their sin. Repentance isn't making payment for your sin. Jesus pays, has paid for our sins. The idea here is that the repentant believer humbly submits to the consequences of his sin. Though those consequences may be painful, and he willingly does so because he wants to show his change. And he recognizes maybe that even some of those consequences may be necessary in his life. If his computer was a window through which he continually looked at evil things, he will submit himself to the consequence of having those devices removed from him because they're a temptation, they're a stumbling block. And though that may be painful, though that may be inconvenient, he willingly submits to it because he wants that change more than anything else. God-centeredness. I want to glorify my God above all. That is what true repentance looks like. That's how you see it. An earnestness and an eagerness, an urgency to address sin rather than avoid it, minimize it, dismiss it. A clearing of oneself with a full and complete confession that takes ownership of sin. A holy indignation A hatred of that sin that fuels a change in the way I walk. A godly fear. So that God is my focus. Not me. A vehement desire. A longing for God 
And for the things of God, a hunger and thirst for righteousness, a zeal, a fervent desire, an energetic effort into fighting sin, turning from it, and revenge. A willing submission to the consequences of that sin. That's true repentance known by its actions. That's what Titus saw in the Corinthians and reports to Paul. And that's what rejoices Paul's heart. Personal application is, beloved, is that the kind of repentance we walk in? Is that the kind of repentance we walk in? Because it's to be our way of life. It's to be our way of life. Repentance isn't an occasional thing. It's a lifestyle for the believer. And so before we think about anyone else, the text would have us think about ourselves. Is this how I handle my own sin? When I sin against my wife, when I sin against my husband, when I sin against my parents, my children, my friend, my fellow church member, my neighbor. And when that sin is pointed out to me, or it's brought to my attention that that sin has created friction, or trouble in my relationships. How do I deal with it? Godly sorrow? Worldly sorrow? True repentance? Or denying and defensiveness? May the Spirit press this word on your hearts and mine. To see the wisdom of this text. That the sorrow of the world. And all of its actions. The minimizing. The blame shifting. The excusing. The denying. The indifference. The avoidance. All of the rest. That all of those things which come so naturally to us. Only lead deeper into trouble. But godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation. Never to be regretted. Let us in dependence upon the grace of the Spirit strive to be a repenting people daily. In losing our life we find it. Godly sorrow opens the door to abiding joy. The more we die to self, the more in fact we truly live. And when we have this understanding of repentance, though it is painful to the flesh, we see it not as something that's shameful or humiliating. So often, we don't want to acknowledge our sin because it's going to embarrass us, it's going to shame us. But the way it should be in the community of believers is that we're all sinners saved by grace, in need of one another's mercy, and willing to extend mercy to one another. When we humbly repent, when we say sorry from the heart, what a beautiful thing it is. What a God-glorifying thing it is. Think of Jesus' parables in Luke 15, specifically verses 7 and 10, where Jesus says that the angels in heaven rejoice when one sinner repents. It's as if there's nothing more beautiful in the eyes of heaven. Even the angels find the repentance of a sinner something to rejoice in. And if heaven's court rejoices, you can be sure that the king of heaven is rejoicing too. Rejoicing in his work, the fruit of his grace and the hearts, the lives of his people. You see that in Paul, the joy Now that the Corinthians have acknowledged their sin, Paul doesn't puff himself up over them in a condescending manner. Treat them harshly. But his heart overflows with joy. May that be how we deal with one another. When we deal with one another that way, 
becomes easier for us to walk humbly one with another. Openly confess our faults to one another. We lay our sins before the throne of grace. We do so confident of God's mercy. When we confess our faults to one another, may we be confident of one another's mercy as well. Repentance. The godly sorrow that worketh repentance. It's the Christian's way of life. And it's a beautiful one. One that honors God. is beautiful in the eyes of heaven. Amen. Faithful God and Father, the word of our text tonight is, from many points of view, a difficult one. The calling to daily repentance is a calling that is so easy to neglect. It goes against our inclinations of the flesh. But help us to see the wisdom and to lay hold of the truth of this passage that godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. Make us a humble people who walk with one another in this way and who humbly walk before thee, our God. Continue to work in us by thy spirit. More and more. Separate us from sin. And consecrate us to thee. This we ask in Jesus name. Amen.